0: Hi and welcome to another edition of Essential Skills of NLP with me of Phil Parker. Uh, Today I'm in Portland, Oregon. On my left, we have Fiona Finch, uh, who is an NLP practitioner and a Lightning Process Practitioner based in Bath and Bristol. And on my right, I have Amanda Ashley, who's also an NLP practitioner and a Lightning Process Practitioner Based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so uh, today we we thought we were having a meeting anyway, and I thought I'd record it because these are interesting people with interesting things to say. Uh, so they're sitting there going, Oh, what are we going to talk about? Well, what we're we going to talk about. I had this really interesting conversation yesterday um, with a midwife uh, who works in uh in Colorado and a little community. And uh, she was saying some really interesting things that are very much chimed with some of the things we talked about in this podcast about. Uh, maps of the world, you know, that whole thing uh, about how we have the map is not the territory, but we think that the, the map, our map of the world is how it really is until sometimes we come across an obstacle or a new bit of it. Uh, and some of the conversations you were having really chimed for that, so I thought it would be interesting to, to talk about it. So one of the things she was saying was um, she has this conversation, she, she, she tends to work a lot, a lot on the community and she has a reputation for helping people to have... Quick and easy birth. So most births, in her experience, only last two hours. That's the kind of norm for her, which is quite out of step with with most people's experience. And she says, uh, the way I see it, she says, is that all you've got to do, what she says to a client, all you've got to do really is just, you know, open up and let it out. That's her. That's her conversation. You have kind of got to get out of the way. And you can hear in this conversation this this difference in map. That that's that's her. Statement of this is how it is and that's one of the things she does in her in her midwifery is in fact training people That you know the women who want to give birth to get their head in that space uh, And th- the other interesting thing she was talking about was this Amish community that she works with uh, And she says and so we're t- just chatting about the Amish and you know how they see the world and stuff and she was saying that s- some of them Don't talk about the process of giving birth at all. So she's had a few uh, girls who've come to see her And she says, look, stop me from, you know, if this is stupid, laugh at me if you want, but do you know how the baby gets out? And a a number of these girls went, no, nobody ever mentioned what what happens at that point. Uh, so, so, So she said, well, that's a really interesting place to come from because what they are then is a blank page. They don't have any preconceptions of where it comes from at all. So then she says to them, oh, well, it only takes two hours maximum, And it's just really easy, you know, it just just happens naturally, this is what we need to do. And they go, okay. so what's happening there is they've got this kind of no map of it's going to happen, but I don't know how it happens. And then she decides to develop this, this is the route map that we're going in. And because they have nowhere else to to, to look from, they go, oh, that's just the way it is. And as a result. She finds that people give birth really, really easily. So I thought that was very interesting, just from in terms of beliefs, creating beliefs, you know, how beliefs, and she says again, you know, one of one of the things that creates the most difficult births. So when people have got into a state about it's going to be difficult or they're anxious about it and resolving that. And this this thing of these people, we don't have a map at all about what happens when you give birth and then creating a map for them, which allows them to just go, oh, this is the way it is. So we can see that these these whole ideas of the map of the world that we have will predict to a degree what happens, what we see, what, what we're ready for, what we expect. And that this important thing of the map not being the territory that we often fall into the trap of assuming that the way that we've seen the world that is the way it is. And we we don't you know we don't recognise that that is an approximation. And one of the things we say in NLP is that our job is to not only expand the map you know to, to get it uh, to all the spaces to be filled out, but also to enrich the map to make sure that it's as good a version as, of reality as it is. And I would say a lot of our work is that, actually, in the lightning process and NLP, is helping people to kind of unpick where their map is inaccurate, but they're stuck with it, and enriching it, and also exploring areas they didn't even think existed, just weren't in the map at all.
1: That's fascinating, because that's just taken me back 20 years between my first two kids, when you worked with me and you re- you helped me rewrite my map. Yeah. And I've not re- recognised that till now. Mm. So because, what was your map of that So time. my first child was, um, I can't remember what the terms is, went back to front, so spine to spine. Oh, right, yeah. And quite a, a, a longer, more difficult labour. And I had that, that was my map. So when I was expecting my second child, my map was, oh, I hope it turns round to be easier way and the baby hadn't but i had this obviously belief that if it stayed as it was it was going to be a horrendous experience and actually you did some work with me which i hadn't recognized till now is what what you you rewrote that and actually it was a very very easy labor Mm. with the second child Mm. and the baby turned at the last minute of its own accord and yeah a really different map so when i had my third i had totally different expectations mm. again, and the midwife was saying, "Oh, do you really want to go to hospital? Don't stop on the bridge. Just <laughs> go if you're going to go, if that's where you want to have the baby. Mm-hmm. So yes, re- you totally re- helped me rewrite my my map, and I've I only just realised that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, I'd agree
2: with you, Phil. I think um, helping people not only change their beliefs, but first step, notice and understand what they are. Because I do find a lot of clients come along and they don't quite recognise how they're holding on very, very tightly to some beliefs that don't serve them. And then the second part is that sometimes they, they do start to recognise, but they have a mistaken idea that these limiting beliefs are actually helpful. Mm. That somehow they're creating safety or something that's predictable by holding on to something that's actually holding them back. Um, so I, th- I agree with you that I think some of the most important work we do is helping people recognise those, those obstacles, those big
1: boulders in the way of, of their progress. I also find this fascinating that it, I've only just realised that that's what happened all that time ago, whereas mm. you know, working with, yeah. in this field is just a natural conversation that we have about changing beliefs. Right. But that's obviously what I did without recognising yeah. actually that was about map and beliefs. Yeah because so we have had some of these
2: beliefs for such a very long time mm. so it's no surprise that they would be invisible and that in the midst of all that you were doing Fiona you had a few other things on your mind yes that's <laughs> true. so you maybe didn't have that moment of, of clarification oh I've changed the belief
1: here yeah and yeah. it's just life seemed more sensible or mm. opened up or whatever without thinking oh I've changed these yeah. long-held beliefs it's right. just actually this is a really interesting way of thinking yeah I think, I think
0: the core cool thing as you said Amanda is that when we have a belief the, the key thing about beliefs is they don't show up as beliefs mm-hmm. they show up as mm-hmm. truths yeah and being able to distinguish what is a belief and you know, what is an approximation of truth mm-hmm. and what is an absolute truth is, is one of the real tricks. And you see this everywhere in a classic example in my you know my work at PhD, I'm doing in addiction, is the first thing they say about addiction is you have to recognise that you've got an issue. Mm-hmm. And for many people, uh, that's the big thing, is they don't realise that there's a problem. It all seems to be relatively well-functioning until it doesn't, until the wheels fell off, fall off, and that's often when
2: they realise they
0: have a problem. But until you recognise that, that the, the, the beliefs you've got, all the behaviours you've got uh, are causing trouble, then you can't do anything about it. And with the lightning process, that's even more complex because a lot of the things we do in the lightning process are looking at things that either medicine would hold to be true, you know, things that we've read or heard from authority figures. So a classic one is um, people will will get an opinion from from a medic saying, there is nothing that can be done about this. And that's kind of true from a medical perspective. What they're saying is we've tried all the tricks in our bag and we can't help you and and what they say is there's nothing can be done about it what they mean is we are, there's nothing more we can do about it and people often get stuck with that oh well there's nothing can be done about this 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 is the end of the road for me rather than I've just run out of that particular road and I need to look at other territory yeah. uh, so those things are really interesting where we've got you know an expert telling us something from, you know from from a place of truth you know from, from their medical opinion there's nothing else that can be done but of course You know, they're experts. It's like a Volkswagen expert is an expert in Volkswagen, he may not be an expert in bicycles or the internet. You know, there are different things to look at. And the other thing I think is not just experts' opinions, but things that we found to be true for ourselves about our health. Um, So I I was doing the lightning process a couple of weeks ago, and there was a group of four people, and they tried just about everything, you know, and they came to the lightning process with different health issues. and one of the things we started to unpack, as so we do on the lightning process, is, you know, what's going on inside? What, do you, what pathways are you triggering in your physiology by the way that you're thinking, approaching your health, the way that you're behaving, habits, all sorts of stuff. And although they'd done loads and loads of work, they suddenly realised there was a whole nother territory they'd never considered mm-hmm. as being areas to look at. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I thought, I thought I'd worked on, you know, all the things that I could change. And now I realise... I've got all this to work on. And that is actually a brilliant moment because that means you've uncovered a whole bunch of... You thought you'd, you know, again, run out of the road. There's nothing more to do. And now you realise, oh, there's... You know, it's annoying as well because you've got to do a lot of work. But at the same time, it's, oh, well, this is amazing because if all this stuff is going on all the time and having an effect on my health, discovering it, that it's there means that I've got more things to change and therefore, you know, who knows what will happen as a result of that. So it's kind of an interesting thing, I think.
1: That is interesting. I had someone recently who came to do The lightning Process for anger management and the real concern was, um, his belief was that by having this anger, this edge, that's what his productivity about, his creativity was based on having to live on the edge a bit. And it was absolutely fascinating unpicking that with him and him working through his beliefs and working out that actually it was anxiety that was fueling it, and that was possibly not aiding creativity, mm. and um, yeah, just unpicking those beliefs has led to well much calmer attitude to everything. Yet the creativity is still there and has much more state, space to grow.
0: Well, it's a, it's a question that people often have, you know, because one of the things we ask them is. Is anxiety ever useful? And most people will go. Oh, actually, when, when I look at it, no, it's not. But one of the exceptions they often will raise is, oh, but uh, I find anxiety helps me to be motivated and focused, and therefore anxiety is a good thing. And our answer to that is, actually, if you want to be motivated and focused, what you need to do is learn to be more motivated and focused, <laughs> not to be more anxious. <laughs> because actually, anxiety yeah, it can be a way of getting yourself into motivation, but it's not the most useful way, there are other ways to do it because generally anxiety, uh, along with a lot of other you know, crappier emotions like anger is rarely useful, it is occasionally if you're chased by a tiger, anxiety you know, producing a stress response in your body might be good but most of the other times where we have it it isn't really what we use
1: and also that's useful, being chased by the tiger for a short period of time yeah. Yeah. it's not yeah. a day to day occurrence but there's a high
2: price to pay for taking the sideways route and going by a Um, anxiety or anger yeah and one of the things that I say to clients at the very beginning is when we talk about beliefs is you know inherently they're not provable because if they were they'd be called something else which I think is kind of a useful place to start yeah and um, another thing Phil that you talk about a lot and I think is really useful is to help people see how easy it is to change a belief once we discover that it really isn't working for us and um, at the same time to start to, to recognize how much this belief is like sort of the, the grand puppeteer is how I describe it, because it is fueling our thoughts, our thinking, our, our states and, and our health. And so if we can sort of get to that root belief and then recognize, oh, I can change this, that's when huge change happens in, in every aspect of, of health and well-being. That's true. I also
1: find that some clients are worried about us unpicking their beliefs, as mm. it, you know, there's no interest <coughs> from our point of view of releasing beliefs that are useful to us. It, yeah. it, that's the bit, isn't it? It's A belief is a belief, it's whether it's useful or not exactly. that we need to look at, so yeah. the reassurance that you, you can believe what you want to believe, right, is right? right. just have a look at whether it's a useful one. Mm. And
0: that's very key, you know, the question is not is it right or wrong but is it useful? And the, the other thing, of course, is talking about beliefs which are fundamentally cognitive constructs, you know, ways of thinking about the world. And there is a question people have is like, well, could that really make a difference to my physical well-being if it's just the way I think? Uh, but all the evidence is absolutely it can. And the classic one, of course, is placebo. Is that when people take a placebo, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, you know, when they take a placebo thinking it's chemotherapy... They will lose their hair. A chunk of people will lose their hair, even if they take a pill containing nothing, and that's a really clear example of a belief. You know, our expectation: this is a pill that has chemicals in it, even though it doesn't, will make their hair fall out. Yeah. And so, if if beliefs can do that, and there's some other studies they did uh, with I think, students taking them to a bar where they give them uh, what they think is alcohol, and it's not. So it's them a vodka and tonic, which is just basically tonic, and they will get drunk. You know, and uh, quite not only socially do they look drunk when they perform in tests they perform like drunk people mm-hmm. even though they've not taken anything and that's you know partly triggers of the environment you know the place looks like a bar but it's fundamentally it's their neurology being triggered by their expectations by their beliefs so beliefs are absolutely essential not just in alternative and complementary health but in you know everyone knows it in, in Orthodox health as well mm-hmm. that you know what you're Relationship is like with your doctor, is really really important. What whether you think the surgery will work, whether you think the drug will work, it's not just the exclusive you know uh, area of, of, of complementary medicine. It's everywhere. Beliefs affect everything we do, not just medicine but performance, teaching, everything. Absolutely essential.
1: Well, if you went to see your surgeon and they said, well, we'll try this operation, we don't know whether it's going to work or not, your your attitude there. Uh, <coughs> Do I want to sign up and consent to this? Mm. It would be totally different than mm. if the doctor presents evidence and says that we found it's worked in this. Mm. Interestingly, health always seem to go the other way as well, that they have to tell you what the potential for things not yeah. working is. Yeah. And those beliefs, it's, it's very hard to just say, well, they've got to balance that right. and, and not go with the belief, oh, well, I've been warned that this, that or the other, and you know, this percentage chance of something going wrong really get in the way it actually. is I think
0: the informed consent is a problem I mean you can see why it's done it's, it's reasonable that it's done but it raises questions and, and, and triggers all sorts of concerns yeah and I was talking about this with some doctors um, just last week and they were saying the way that they manage it is they're trained to kind of now say listen this probably isn't going to apply to you but we have to say it anyway it's one of those legal things you know but if we do this operation, there's a 1% chance you'll die. You know? <laughs> but it probably won't apply to you. But it's, it's a very difficult place to be, to, be, to have to talk about those you know, insurance risks to somebody who's already quite you know, concerned about what's, what, what the procedure is. And to manage that is quite tricky for people. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm.
1: And to get that balance right, to, to be able to see how the person's taken that information and how they've taken that belief on where, where it fits in their map, their territory.
0: There's another other thing I also do as well, which is, uh, you know, if they say, oh, we would give you this drug, it would give you this percentage chance of, you know, or you have this illness and it, it has this percentage chance of that you won't survive it, that again, if you language that differently, so instead of saying 95% of people die from this illness, you can say, listen, 5% of people completely recover from this illness and I've got a sense that you're going to be one of them, mm-hmm. and that there is good evidence that that is a much more useful way to present that information and what will be the effect of those kind mm-hmm. of conversations.
2: And similarly, I think we see when clients come to to the lightning process training and they, they really have worked on their beliefs to the point where they're just ready to go, there's nothing in their way, they get such quick results. Mm. Yeah. Um, and um, I think m- most of my work is is working with people on their beliefs, and it slows things down. Yeah. You know, other than just sort of delivering the training. I'm yeah. Sure that's yeah. true for most most practitioners. Yeah,
0: I, and I would say not just in the lightning process, but in everything. Yeah. If if your belief is this is going to work, uh, I'm completely ready to do whatever it takes. I'm pretty certain this is the right person for me. This is the moment in time when this is going to be effective. You will have a better outcome, mm-hmm. and that's that's independent pretty much of whatever the treatment regime is, whether it's chemotherapy, surgery, lightning process, NLP, homeopathy, whatever it is, yeah. your, you know, your belief about your interaction with the person, with the therapy, with the timing, are really, really significant things. And you know, a lot of research, which I'm doing at the moment, is, is designed to try and remove those things because they are difficult you know, in terms of research, but actually what we should be doing is embracing those things and right, okay, how can we get this to work for us? If these things make such a difference how can we make sure that we have the the best belief so if we're going to have surgery that we have the belief this is the best surgeon for me this is you know that what will be the impact of thinking about things in that way so once again looking at what is our map you know how is that map helping us how can we enrich that map? Mm-hmm. so we're going to close off this uh, podcast in just a minute anything you'd like to add just a final point from uh, what we talked about
2: just one one last thought. I'm just thinking about a lovely client who's made phenomenal change. She's really been sick her whole life, and what I've watched her do is change her her belief in her identity. Actually, that she's not a sick person anymore, and um, she ended up having two medical emergencies after doing the training, completely unrelated. Um, and she said she has this new sense of lightness that she could just you know glide on through because she was going to heal quickly, which she has done from both these unrelated events because she's reframed who she is. Mm. It's just lovely to watch.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, because um, one of the areas we work with a lot is chronic fatigue. And I've noticed, both on Twitter um, and in emails quite often, that people will give themselves a Twitter name, like Amanda... Fatigue, or Amanda, CFS, (laughs) or tired Amanda, or sleepy Susie, as a kind of a name, and and quite often people do the lightning post. They kind of go, oh, hold on a minute. Every time I log into my account, (laughs) that's what's coming into my face. It's sleepy Susie or tired Mm -hmm. as whatever tired chicken, and uh, and they change their Twitter name or their email address because otherwise you're constantly being reminded of that as, mm. as a kind of an identity level statement of this is who I this illness is who is a chunk of who I am and you can understand why they do it because it's you know it is a, it it's it under. is a, ch- a chunk of their life and they want to honor that and let people know that but you can also see that there's a the consequence of constantly checking in with that you know mm. what is the effect of that neurologically of just being reminded every time, and every time someone reposts or retweets, mm. to Sleepy Susie," mm. you know that thought comes up. Mm. That becomes part of your identity. So, yeah. and
1: how other people see you because that's what you're right. sharing. Yes. Mm. So it's not just so how the feedback you see that ourselves? supports it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So again, the map, the and, and uh, in this case, Fee, Fee's just saying map we give other people this is this is what I do this is who I am this is my territory and, and again with the line press the other day um, people said uh, I noticed that my mum and dad said am I okay kept on checking with me you know and having to retrain all these people I had trained so another woman said um, I went back to the States she did it in the UK I went back to the States and said uh, before having been ill for years I said to my kids Mummy can only do one task a day, that's all she can do. And when she went back, she said, uh, Mummy can now multitask, she can do many tasks she wants a day. And the kids went, Mummy, you're doing more than one task. So she trained the kids into that so well, and she yeah. had to train them out of that expectation because otherwise, we create this map of physical reality where people mm. remind us of the things that we said we can't do. So, really interesting stuff. So, as you listen to this, check in and think to yourself, okay. What map do I have? What map am I telling other people about myself? Is that powerful, is that useful, is that helpful? Particularly around health, but pretty much anything. You know, people, my my mum, my lovely mum, used to say uh, I was very shy as a kid. And wherever I went, the first thing she'd say is, oh, Philip's very shy. So everyone knew. So the map was (laughs) laid out in front of me. (laughs) Um, So think about what maps are you telling other people about your kids, about yourself, about your company, about your health? Is that the message you want to be putting across to other people and to yourself? Check it out, change it. You know, once you recognize it, it's easy to change. this change the conversation. And words and conversations have power. So I hope you found this useful. Thanks, Fee, for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda, as well. Uh, if you want to check them out, we'll put some links to what's your website, Fee?
1: FionaFinchCoaching.com or Lightning Process LightningProcessBrisk
0: com or com. Amanda, what's your website?
2: amanda
0: com. Okay, Amanda-Ashley with an E.com. Uh, uh, that's in Portland, in Oregon, which is where we are right now, looking at the trees. and, and it's cloudy today, but it was beautifully sunny yesterday. And Fiona in Bath and Bristol. So I hope you found this useful. Uh, drop us a line if you've got any questions, as always. And uh, speak to you guys soon. Bye
2: now. Bye. Bye-bye.